Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how can we get more in touch with our diasporic roots? Uh, Before we get started, I just want to say my topic for this week of um, what's been on my mind, it does talk about sexual assault. It does talk about rape. Um, So this is a trigger warning for our audience. We want you to know that we love you. We send you all, all, all that love and support. But if this is a topic that is triggering to you, please fast forward. So, Shauna, I can't wait to dive into this amazing uh, episode that we have for our listeners this week. But first, as always, please tell me what's on your mind this week. Uh, What is on my mind this week is really rabid, gross stand culture, as well as how the media and I recognize that we are the media, Jaren, but, you know, we we can call we can call everybody to the table. That's fine including ourselves Um, and just how the media plays into that as well as really just the unfairness (laughs) of uh, celebrity culture in general. Now, um, and I recognize that this is possibly putting myself on the front lines. I don't know if any Nicki Minaj stands listen, the barbs, they listen to this show. Um, And, you know, perhaps I might have to be careful of being doxxed or something like that, but when I tell you, those barbs are nutty. And I say this as a member of the Beehive, okay? Y'all have problems. This past week, a story was, was released. Ironically, not on you know certain sites like The Shade Room, but we'll get back to that. Um, but a story was released that basically the victim, Kenneth Petty's victim, Nicki Minaj's husband, um, who he was, he pled guilty in the 90s um, to attempted rape. If I'm not mistaken, the facts of the case is that he actually did rape this young lady, but took a plea deal, um, pled guilty to attempted rape. Um, And, you know, a couple years ago, when Nicki first got with this bum, she she definitely faced some backlash because everyone was like, why would you be marrying someone who's on the sex offender registry? Why would you be married, having a kid with someone who is a violent sexual predator? Nikki, if we all remember, took to her queen radio and there were several interviews and things that she did. And she said, oh, well, you know, the girl, they were dating at the time and uh, the girl actually like lied. She took her story back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, none of that is true. But those are, that was the information that Nikki put out there into the, you know, stratosphere of celebrity gossip. That young woman, um, or, well, she's not that young anymore. That woman <laughs> uh, went and decided that she was going to sue Nikki and Kenneth because she says, ever since that time, um, <clears throat> ever since that time that she has been subject to harassment bribery and just a lot of just gross behavior, not just from Nicki Minaj herself, but like other people who are affiliated with the two of them. 
Um, there are a lot of people who like to say, oh, well, you know, old girl recanted it. There's a recording. You got to go listen to it. One fool said that in our Instagram comments on this story to which I responded. No, she never said that. If you actually like, let's let's not just go off of what Nikki said, actually listen to what she said. She said a childhood friend by the name of black, according to um, the, the, the paperwork that the paperwork that was filed in this suit offered her $20,000 and then slid her a green folder that had a pre-written recanting of, you know, the, the events that happened to her, the violent rape that happened to her, um, that she, all she had to do was sign. She said, no, thank you. She took the cash. She put it on the seat of the, of the floor, or she put it on the, the floor of the car and was like, you're like, again, you're a childhood friend. I can't believe that you would even do this. She says, since then, um, she had Nikki uh, approach her and say things like, uh, you know, yeah, I can help make your situation a little easier financially, a bribe. And, um, you know, oh, I can also, what I could throw on top of there is I know your birth, your daughter's birthday is coming up. I can send her like birthday wishes or something like that. To which I'm like, so <laughs> like Nikki is a villain, bro. She's a villain because <laughs> so now you're sitting here and saying that I should recant. I should say that I lied about something violent that happened to me as a teenager for a, a few measly shekels and a cameo from you, girl, who, what, who raised you? I am, I am baffled by it, but actually I'm not that baffled because Nicki Minaj, and I say this as someone who at the onset of Nicki's career, I love Nicki. I was never a barb, but love Nicki thought she was Yes, new and fresh and, and everything to the industry and to the culture. I I loved her until she went on her pop rampage when she decided that she needed white fans. Cool, whatever. As a native New Yorker, I was here for itty bitty piggy, like all of that stuff. But Nicki Minaj has a history of being problematic. She is not for women. She is not for women's empowerment. I don't care what she says. I don't care who she is, is trying to pretend that she's bringing along or that she's trying to lift as they climb. No, she doesn't. She does not. And the fact that she has a history of supporting violent predators is a problem for me. And it's not even on some old cancel Nicki Minaj stuff. It's just, it's gross. And we should all take a moment and not get so lost and entrenched in fandom that that behavior is okay with you. She sat up here and was paying for and supporting the case against her her convicted pedophile brother. She sat up here and was still making music with that little white that little white Spanish boy with the skittle colored hair and giving all of his stuff. Like what? I'm surprised if she didn't have a song with XXXTentacion, whatever that little boy's name was before he passed. I don't know. She probably does. I stopped listening to Nikki stuff a long time ago, but it's just, it's gross. It's really gross. And then these fans, she sicks her rabid fans onto people. I, I did not forget, Nikki, that you went and had, just because a young lady put out a tweet that basically said, hey, Maybe perhaps, Nick, because you're you're getting a little older, perhaps make music that's a little bit more attuned to your age instead of this pop, pop, rackety, rack, blah, blah, blah type of stuff. And you sat up there and had that girl doxxed. 
It's crazy. And the shade room, y'all not slick. You were pouring on any of the body's messiness, any of the body's, any, every other body's nonsense and trash. But conveniently, y'all have nothing to say about this, about Nikki. I see y'all. I know what y'all are on. It is cool. I get it. You know, can't, can't rock the boat on certain things, but just know it, it delegitimizes. Well, you weren't that legitimate before, but it delegitimizes a lot of what y'all say that y'all are about. You know, Shauna, uh, this whole Nicki Minaj uh, situation is very, very, very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also on a serious note, as a, a victim of sexual assault, molestation as a child, um, I do not take this lightly. Um, and I think that it's very irresponsible for Nicki Minaj to insert herself in this way. Like, listen, you are a public figure. If you want to marry uh, a man who was convicted for attempted rape, uh, that's your business. Uh, but you don't have the right to try to influence people uh, about how they feel about said husband. You know, you chose to marry him. People have the right to have public opinions about this man because you are a public figure. It also doesn't just it doesn't really bode well for someone like Nicki Minaj. And to your point, Shauna, like I would also agree that Nicki Minaj uh, has not demonstrated that she is a proponent for women. Mm-hmm. Um even the the beef with her and Lil Kim, the beef with her and Cardi B, you know, so much of that, you know, seems like it was rooted in this uh, this desire to hold on to her place in hip hop. Mm-hmm. The idea that there can only be one woman. I think it's ironic that that Nicki Minaj for almost a decade kind of carried uh, women in hip hop and kind of opened the door for more women to succeed in hip hop for her to be to now have this reputation for being somebody who was anti-woman. I can't think of many songs with her and other female rappers. I think of the Cardi B feature, but that's what led to the Cardi B, Nicki Minaj beef um, and how she interacts with her contemporaries and even the women that came before her in hip hop. Or we're talking about her actions or alleged actions involving her husband's past. It's really unfortunate because she proclaims to be for women, but when you are trying to use your power and your influence and your 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 uh, superstardom to silence another black woman who is a victim, regardless of what you might feel about your husband, whether you think that you know, I don't know what she thinks. I don't even want to even presume to assume what she thinks. Mm-hmm. But we to not create space and hold space for women to be believed for women to be to be heard is the reason why we're having the problem that we're having when it comes to sexual assault and sexual abuse um, as it relates to women especially but not just women you know all there are men who are also victims um, and I speak for them as well um, and it's hurtful when you see people try to to silence people in this way it's 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 honestly disgusting. There's just no excuse for it. Um, and I'm, I, I salute this woman for coming out publicly because it's, she is putting herself um, in the fire. It's mm-hmm. not, she can potentially uh, put herself in harm's way. You know, you mentioned being doxxed. I mean, that's a real thing. This is, we're in that, that climate right now in social media where mm-hmm. people are having their personal business being exposed, um, having, having their safety be um, in jeopardy for speaking their truth. And that's just not cool. And let's remember, like, she's had to move, her and her family has had to move several times 
since then. And also something else that really just, it, it just clicked in my mind because I feel like Nikki stands forget these things, but the North remembers. Uh, I remember Nikki pretending to support Remy when she was in prison and free Remy this and da da da, And then Remy gets out and, oh, like you're, you're, you're actually a mean girl. And so now Remy has to go and sit out, go out here and put out this whole like ether beat, <laughs> you know, diss track for you. And you went silent. I, I, I remember your response, but it wasn't that I remember that you responded eventually, but it wasn't that memorable. Um, you know, let's also like, let's also not forget because a lot, a lot of people are like, oh, well, these are just rumors and allegations of that. She tried to bribe this woman and, or, you know, this woman's family, but let's not forget when her brother was facing charges, there were also allegations that Nikki and Nikki's people were trying to bribe that young girl's family. Because if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the brother was convicted of molesting his girlfriend's child. And so it was, it's gross. It's gross, dude. (laughs) Like that's, that's pretty much all I got. I hate to go from one heavy topic to an even heavier topic, uh, but I would be remiss if I also did not talk about um, the crises that are happening across the globe um, in Haiti um, and in Afghanistan. Uh, As we know, um, I'll start with Haiti Um, over last week, they had a 7.2 magnitude earthquake that has so far killed uh, at least 1,400 Haitians. Um, this is uh, after the 2010 earthquake that killed over 200,000 Haitians. Um, and this also comes just uh, a month after their president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated. And so Haiti is going through a lot. And then also Afghanistan, President Biden uh, has chosen to uh, with- withdraw um, out of Afghanistan. This is a promise that he's made. Uh, Many presidents have made this promise, so this is not necessarily surprising. Uh, But what was surprising, at least to the Biden administration, was uh, the way in which the Taliban uh, would start to occupy and take over Afghanistan and the Afghan soldiers that were trained by American soldiers to fight back and to uh, secure their country, uh, they chose, they have, they basically have chosen to not fight back. Um, It's not quite clear why. Uh, Their own president left and fled. Um, And it's, if you've seen the videos of of, uh, Afghan people running, clinging on to a US uh, military plane, trying to uh, desperately uh, not be left behind, but they were that desperate so much so that unfortunately there were uh, reportedly uh, two people uh, who fell from that plane who were holding on to the plane while it was in the air. Um, and there's still like some um, not clear reporting about what was happening there, but I believe that there were at least two Afghan people who fell from the plane and perished. And, you know, what connects these two uh, crises for me is one that it involves black and brown people and also the the role of America. And so I personally have very complicated feelings around the ways in which America inserts itself in geopolitics. I understand that there are just some things that we, that America feels that it has to do to protect its interests, to protect democracy. And I am not a proponent for war. Um, and I, but you know, the mission for going into Afghanistan was to destabilize the Taliban 
to find uh, and find, capture and or kill Osama bin Laden, who was uh, uh, killed by U.S. military in 2011 under the Obama administration. Um, and so the mission, according to Biden, is that the mission's over, that nation building um, is not what the point of this war was supposed to be, although that is what America did. They helped um, the Afghans try to beef up their military to, to, uh, to fight back. But the Taliban is now back in control, it seems, or will be in full control once the U.S. is completely out. Um, and it's a mess. It's really a mess. And it's really. But more importantly, you know, I just really empathize again with these black and brown people um, because they're in Afghanistan. You know, there are women who are who are who are heartbroken by what is happening because Taliban, they they follow a very strict following of their interpretation of Islam. Um, and I, my heart goes out to Haiti because America occupied Haiti. Let's not forget that while Haiti gained their independence um, and had to pay back uh, debt to France, who who colonized them, um, and America tried to uh, gave them money to, but it was like it paled in comparison to what they owed to France. Um, and so America has a role in in Haiti as well, in the in, in the in the instability that's going on in Haiti. Um, and I, my, my message to black America, uh, is to, is to pay attention, uh, to the role of America and the role of European nations and, and, and start to really read up on what's happening in Afghanistan and Haiti, uh, because this is not by happenstance. This is a history of repeating itself. Um, and I'm closely watching and I just really feel for, uh, these people because these are people's real lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I could not imagine being in Haiti and Afghanistan right now. Uh, yes, the United States continues to be a great big villain who throws stones and hides their hands. But <laughs> well, let's get into this uh, week's episode. The desire to return to the motherland has been around since the advent of the first African into America during the transatlantic slave trade throughout the 16th century. But it wasn't until the late 1800s that the movement really took root. Once the Berlin Conference partitioned Africa into smaller states, causing European imperialists to divide the territories amongst themselves, many in the Black community began to rally together under the Pan-Africanism movement. Today, the desire to experience a sense of belonging has pushed many African descendants, American or otherwise, towards returning to the African continent. This has taken shape via Ghana's 2019 Year of Return initiative, marking the fourth centennial of the first enslaved Africans being brought to America, further investments being made into African tourism, and in some cases, a complete relocation to the motherland. This week, we'll be discussing what this movement looks like today, how you can be a part of it, and what the future holds for us all. Let's get into it. So, Shauna, remember, I'm sure you growing up in New York, especially, and you've heard uh, the term go back to Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and so on one end, there are unfortunately in, in our own communities we, where black Americans would say that to um, Africans or people of African descent or who are like more closely uh, to the motherland or, or, or their parents immigrated from Africa. And then you hear it from white people who just say it just to any black person. Uh, we've heard that a lot during the Trump administration. We continue to hear that phrase, go back to Africa. But, you know, 
there's nothing wrong with going back to Africa, if you ask me, especially now in 2021, uh, because America, as you would say, Shauna, is the ghetto. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, pan-Africanism, uh, which is what the, the movement is really about, the movement is about uh, this collective understanding that people who are, are, are from Africa, whether you are part of the diaspora in the West Indies, in the United States, or whether you are on the continent, that we all have a collective struggle um, a, a, against European co colonization and imperialism, um, and that we are stronger together. Now, there are many different interpretations or opinions or stances, I should say, or ideologies along the Pan-African uh, movement. But I just want to shout out some of the leaders, uh, the thought leaders in the Pan-African movement, uh, Martin Delaney and Alexander Crummel, as well as Edward Blyden. Uh, the three of them are known as the some of the, the ones who spearheaded uh, Pan-Africanism, and they believe that uh, black people could not prosper alongside white people. And that the best thing that we can do is to uh, not only return to Africa, but create our own, um, our own nation. Mm -hmm. And then it was more popularized by most people know W.E.B. Du Bois, who is famously known for coining the double consciousness term. Um, he, was, he is um, a, a, a leading scholar um, in the early 1900s. And so he also advocated for not only for Pan-Africanism, but more specifically, he advocated for the studying of African heritage and culture and knowing your history. Um, because as we know, for those of us who are part of the, the, the African slave trade, uh, so much of our history was lost. You know, that oral history was lost. Black uh, slaves were uh, enslaved. People were not allowed to read. Um, they were not allowed to congregate together in large numbers. And so there were so many efforts to um, not only oppress us, but so many efforts to erase um, our history and our culture. And I think Marcus Garvey is most famously known for his Pan-Africanism uh, because he went a step further with uh, the Black Star Line, which was an attempt to ship Black people back to Africa. And I remember learning about uh, Marcus Garvey but I have to say, I went to Catholic school and, you know, the education uh, in the, the, uh, the, the diocese, the Catholicism was very uh, light. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that many African-Americans, I can speak for African-Americans, uh, many of us might know loosely this history, but many of us also just don't really know about the history of Pan-Africanism, which is why I think when I was growing up in school, why you heard so many kids saying, go back to Africa, and they teased um, students who are African, not knowing that they come from the very same place that you're, you come from. Mm -hmm. um, and so this conversation is really important. I'm glad we're having it because in 2021, uh, we are seeing white supremacy continue to rear its ugly head. Um, and I think this is now, this is the time more than ever for Black people across the diaspora to unite. And maybe that does look like us leaving America. Uh, maybe, but I would say more realistically, it starts with us having conversations together and understanding that our plights are similar, uh, that we are stronger together, and that it's important for uh, Black business owners to do business in Africa. I was having a conversation recently with someone from the Biden administration, a part of Africa Prosper, which essentially is, uh, is a government agency intended to bolster U.S. African trade. And this, this person was telling me that a lot of the people who do business, business in Africa are not Black. Um, and they just... And, 
black business owners just don't know the resources that are available for them to to be able to export their goods and products to Africa. Um, and so I really think that this is a perfect time for us to reset to one, learn our history, but then also take it a step further and decide what that looks like for Black America, what that looks like for um, people of African descent across the globe, because white supremacy is con is continuing to not only persist, but in my opinion, it's beginning to really uh, take take new ugly forms and get stronger in some ways in our in our politics and our economic structure, not just in America but throughout the globe, and so. Pan-Africanism uh, is, I think, got lost because it, it had a resurgence during the the pan the the 70s and the 60s during the civil rights movement, uh, the Black Panther Party movement. But I think that in black in America, black people focus on assimilating um, and trying to, you know get more access, economic and social access, um, and kind of did away with the idea of us returning to Africa and we kind of just got lost um, in that. Um, but Shauna, what are your thoughts about Pan-Africanism? And do you think that there is momentum uh, for this movement to to research? Um, so I, it's crazy because I, I definitely remember, you know, and especially like growing up in New York, you always heard the term African booty scratcher. When I really realized, like kids were terrible. Kids are really awful, but I remember like that was a a constant uh, insult. Uh, we had one white girl <laughs> at, at my high school, and she said something along those same lines of like "go back to Africa." So one in in a school of like ninety percent black people, she said this to one of the black folks, and like nine, and like the rest were like Latinos, and she's the one white girl, and she said it, and we're like girl what like what <laughs> what are you even what are you even talking about like yeah as a matter of fact we'd like to go back y'all thought we were so popping you brought us here like what are you talking about i think i'm so glad that you mentioned you know there is an opportunity in terms of businesses um and, and rather entrepreneurship uh and and black folks especially here in the united states who don't know what's happening or that they have some that they can have access to certain things in africa um I believe right now some of the the largest demographic that's doing business in Africa, as far as I know, are Asians. I know China is very, very interested in the motherland right now. That's a that's a conversation for another episode. I, you know, we had a, a member of our team, um, a former member of our team, he started to do business in Rwanda for a time and he was like, yo, it's, it's, it's booming out here. Like we, we should be out here. <sighs> Here's the thing. I think there is a, a, a movement for Pan-Africanism. I think there is an ability to have an, and see a boost in that idea of collective unity and, you know, po hell, possibly even relocating to uh, relocating back to the motherland. Um, I, we saw that especially this is going to sound crazy, but we saw that especially with uh, when Black Panther came out. Do you know how excited Negroes were? And it's and it wasn't even because here's this film with 98 percent black folks, but it was the idea of, yo, imagine a nation of just us that was never colonized, that was never influenced by white supremacy. Like, how excellent could we have been? How much more excellent could we have been? How limitless could we have been had it not been for white supremacy? Herein lies my problem and why I think pan-Africanism might be dead in the water. 
And that is because we as a collective, as Black folks, as a culture, tend to, we divide ourselves in really gross ways. And when I say that, this is where I'm talking about like the Hoteps, right? This is where we're talking about the Dr. Umars and the Boyce Watkins and the Tariq Nasheeds. Because understand if we're saying us as a collective, we can be great together and stronger together, do recognize that that includes our gay and lesbian uh, brothers and sisters, please understand that includes our LGBT brothers and sisters. Please understand that that includes our disabled brothers and sisters. Like it's everybody. If it's not all of us, it's none of us, period. And you, I mean, we've talked on this show endlessly about just how disgusting and vile that we could be to one another, always in an effort to separate ourselves. I don't know if it's possible for Pan-Africanism and capitalism to survive in the same breath. Like it, you know what I mean? Because just the idea of Kate, I'll give a perfect example. We've seen all last week, uh, Dr. Dre's daughter is like 38 year old daughter. She's like living out of her car, all of these things, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, just seeing some of the comments on Twitter alone uh, from people who were, oh, well, Dre isn't, Dre isn't responsible for her. She's a grown woman and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and all of these things. And <laughs> she, he's not, what did it, I think someone said that he's not her or she's not, beho- he's not beholden to her or something to that effect. And I'm like, but isn't that the, the very concept of being a parent? Number one. Number two, how are you sitting on here talking about generational wealth if you're not doing something to help? And and there's I think there's very much so a difference of people who just want to, you know, suck the money from your (laughs) from your your wealthy parents and, you know, all of the, the, the hard work that they've done. And if you're not willing to do the same, I think there's a difference between that and just being like, well, I don't bang with your mother. And so our relationship fell apart. So because of that, I'm not going to help you, my child. It's it's weird to me and it's gross. I would love I would love to see it. I would love to see and feel that kind of collective movement and love and and ability to fight this terrible, terrible, insidious notion of white supremacy and, and colonialism in general. But I think we are so busy trying to be like white people that we can never really learn how to love just black people. You know what I mean? Like if, if that makes sense, it's, it's, and it's something that it, it honest, in all honesty, it hurts my heart. Um, and for me, it's a, and I guess this is a question for you, G like, who do you think exactly is a part of this movement who should be a part of this movement? And why is that so important? Mm-hmm. You know, I I struggle with that because I think, you know, as I identify the leaders of the Pan-African movement, you know, decades ago, today, uh, there is no, it seems like there's no uh, central place where we can pinpoint this is the movement. And what is that movement? What is it called today? You know, we have the Black Lives Matter movement here in uh, the United States, and we saw that go global last year during uh, the George Floyd protests. Um, and so social justice was the thing that kind of um, gave us a new opening into this conversation around uh, global, the global uh, awareness around the plight of 
people across the diaspora. And I had a conversation with someone from South Africa, a reporter who, who is working here at the Grio, and I found so many similarities in the, the struggles that she, ex- that she expressed about what's happening in South Africa and the history of South Africa and the United States. And I think that uh, there's so many similarities in what we all have experienced both presently and in the past, uh, because to your point, you know, when you said that, you know, capitalism, you don't think that it, capitalism can coexist uh, with Pan-Africanism, because the reality is that we're talking about Pan-Africanism because of the history of white European people, white people uh, feeling the need to assert their power over black and brown people uh, to get what they want whether it was resources, commodities, or actual people and, and using people as commodities. And because that is the, the foundation by which we as a global society operate through capitalism, to a point, to your point, uh, I don't think that we can ever have this uh, utopian world where, there, where Black people come together and we are all prospering, we're all, uh, we're all free. We all have liberation. Um, that's difficult to have when so much of how geopolitics works, whether we're talking about colonialism and the impacts of colonialism in Africa and the United States. I was talking about earlier in the show, talking about Afghanistan and Haiti. Uh, all these things come down to economics and power and capitalism. And you know, I just always, I often think about what the world will look like if we never, if we never created capitalism. Like what if instead of trading goods, we shared it? And we as a global society just allow everyone to just be free. Some people might call me a communist uh, <laughs> uh, for, for speaking in this way. But, you know, to some degree, I would say what we have to have a more intellectual and more loving conversations around what communism is and what it is not and how we behave and treat each other in a society. So I don't know who is a part of the movement, but I do think that we can start to create some type of movement toward whatever that looks like in, in, in a realistic way. You know, I know someone, uh, his name is Joseph Tolton, and he created this organization called Interconnected Justice. And the very mission of the organization is trying to connect Africans with people across the diaspora. Um, and through a sort, sort of like Black Lives Matter, but on a global stage. And, but he is, he's just one man in one organization and it really hasn't found any national or global rise or attention. But I do think the year of return with with Ghana, I think that with that and even in my social circles, I'm starting to see more of a blending, more of a accepting uh, African culture in our social circles. Those things are promising. It it, it says to me that there's an appetite for African-Americans, at least I can speak for African-Americans. I think there's an appetite to know more about our history. You know, I remember what I was watching the the Netflix show, High on the Hog. And even though that show is about food, this was a a black African-American man returning to his roots. Um, and, and there was a scene where he just broke down in tears because he was so, he's like, he was spiritually connected to the land and the culture and the history. And for me, I think for us to really have liberation, we have to have some type of return to Africa, whether it's, whether that's through tourism or whether that's through, uh, immigration, uh, you know, through just 
leaving America altogether. But I do think that that there's a way to have a new movement for Pan-Africanism, even if it's not in the way that uh, our forefathers had envisioned. Um, you know what's crazy is because I, I have yet to be on the African continent. It, it is on the bucket list. Um, I was supposed to go 2019 uh, for my line sister's wedding, but it was either the wedding or do a solo dolo trip to Thailand. And I wanted to be by myself. So, um, but it's crazy because I remember there have been a number of my friends and like close acquaintances who have moved to Africa. So there's uh, one friend who's in Zambia right now. Um, there's uh, several who've gone to Ghana, several who've gone to Nigeria. And it's, it's beautiful to, it's beautiful to see them, you know, decide to say, I'm out <laughs> like the United States is this, this, this is not where I want to live my life, raise my children, you know, and, and thrive. I can't thrive here in the United States. And I completely understand that type of sentiment. I myself have thought that I'm eventually going to move to Africa. Um, I know my uncle and his wife are pretty much planning it right now. Like they're at retirement age and they're like, now nah, we're out. Like we can't do this. There was also, it wasn't Ghana. I believe it was Nigeria, but there was a video of, it was like a collective group of people who were going back to some country in Africa. I cannot remember which I'll, I'll, I'll have to look it up again, but they arrived and there were people from that country who were singing a song to them in their native tongue. And basically the song is saying like, welcome home. And I remember watching that and like tears welling up in my eyes of being like, yo, can you imagine just being in a place where you don't have to feel like I have to watch my back. Like, is this racist? Like, I don't, I've, I've never really experienced that. Even the idea of go of traveling abroad, I have to look up you know, other people's experiences of, okay, what kind of racism have you experienced? Like what kind of, what kind of effery goes on in that country? And then, but again, it kind of just brings me to, I, I think that you're right in that there has been a kind of reawakening for Pan-Africanism. Um, one big idea for me is uh, Afrobeats. I, I, you know, all of a sudden music has taken over, you know, um, hell, Beyonce had a whole black is king. It's like 95% of the album, <laughs> you know, is our, our people from the, our people from the continent who are making this beautiful music. And it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it is spiritual to, to, to witness and to experience because you, there's some, there's some Afrobeat songs that I'm listening to. And like, my hips are moving and it's not just because I got rhythm. Like, I feel like, Yes, like this this is this is touching a piece <laughs> of me. This is touching this is touching a piece of my ancestors and I love it. You know, and I think collectively we as black people and this is not just American black people. We as black people need to figure out how do we stop being so awful to one another? There's a video right now on Twitter that is going pretty viral. And it's a it's a scene from Grand Theft Auto Five, and it's like towards the end of the game. I'm a gamer. This is towards the end of the game, and it's basically like 
it's it's the main character michael and uh like a fbi agent a cia agent and a, like a local policeman and they all have like guns on one another and then there's like and someone put uh like american blacks caribbean blacks uh <laughs> like um you know uk blacks like they it's everybody has their own identity and everyone has these like guns and stuff out and then there's like the like a, the military comes the military is like uh like oh nigerians or something like that and then here comes this helicopter and they all it's a shootout they all just start shooting one another and i'm like mm. yeah this is funny but this is also really sad because it's actually it's pretty accurate and not to say that twitter is at all a measure of <laughs> you know, of of it's it's not the barometer of oh like this is how black people treat each other or anything like that, but it is a segment of watching our people interact. And granted, I do understand too that there are some there are some white folks who are posing like some of us. There there are a bunch of y'all who are black fishing, but we'll get into that later. Who like to cause division and and you know stuff. But it is very troubling to see that that is actually the case. I can't tell you how many stupid conversations I have to mute about, well, why do Africans think that they're better than American Blacks? Or, you know, even in my own family, I've had to tell my Caribbean family members, like, I have to remind them like, hey, you know, I, I was born here in the United States. Like, yes, and, you know, descendants of Guyanese people, Jamaican people, but I am still born in the United States. I still qualify myself as an African-American and perhaps we should stop, you know, just acting a fool. Like, like what? Like, it, I don't know. Black people. I love y'all, but some of y'all make me sad. <laughs> yeah. I would just quickly add that, you know, at the end of the day, I just really challenge us to us as in black people across the diaspora to to reconnect with our roots, to understand that we are all in this together. And I just really just want to imagine a different, better world for not just the world at large, but specifically for us, because mm -hmm. I think we were robbed of the opportunity to truly be free and to truly love each other in harmony. Um, and I'm always on the optimistic side and I really believe that we can get there. <laughs> uh, but I also think it's about time that we stop looking to America for the solutions to the problems we're perpetually facing. This country has proven time and time again that they do not have our interests at heart. It's possible that something as simple as power consolidation in Africa could reimagine the allocation of global resources, as well as unleashing fiercer psychological and political assertion that would unsettle social and political power structures in the Americas. I hope to see some of you in the motherland as soon as we make our way out of this nasty pandemic. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is African Ancestry. African Ancestry is the world leader in tracing family lineage of African origin. Having helped more than 750,000 people reconnect with the roots of their family tree, African Ancestry relies on the industry's largest and most complete database of over 30,000 native African DNA samples, African family history, and is even able to determine specific countries and ethnic groups of origin with accuracy and confidence. For more information, visit their website at AfricanAncestry.com. That's A-F-R-I-C-A-N. 
A-N-C-E-S-T-R-Y.com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And of course, please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those. To podcasts at thegrill.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grill and executive produced by Blue Salusma and co-produced by Taji Sr., Brenda Alexander, and Abdul Kadus.